You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we go through the books of the Bible in a three-step process. I'm Andrew Kingsley, here with Drew Kaiser, and today we're in our eighth episode on the book of prophecy of Jeremiah, and we've covered a lot, a lot of ground so far in Jeremiah, and so just to make sure that we're all on the same page and kind of at least have a, a good idea of what's going on right now in the book of Jeremiah. Basically, God has called Jeremiah to bring a message of judgment upon the people of Israel. Israel's gone after other gods, and we saw in chapter 1 how God remembered how Israel was similar to a newlywed couple. Uh, The bride of their youth is what God says, that they used to be in love, and now they have abandoned him, and they have Taken on new lovers are the exact words that are in the prophecy that we have read so far. And so God's not happy with what this bride has done to him. And so Jeremiah is the tool that God uses to bring in the prophecy of the coming judgment that's actually getting very, very close to being realized. As we're going to see today, Jehoiakim is a guy we've been talking about for a few episodes now. He is really going to be the last king of Judah before Nebuchadnezzar comes in. Then Jehoiachin will get put up for just a little while. But we are getting very close to the realization of this prophecy of doom that Jeremiah is bringing. And in our episode today, what Jeremiah is focusing on is a theme that we've already seen, and that's just how far Israel had fallen, and that includes their leaders. So, Drew, you have outlined our chapter today, which is chapters 22 and 23, you've outlined those based on the evil rulers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, these two chapters have a lot about leadership. In fact, our listeners who are interested in leadership and studying that and trying to develop some leadership principles will get a lot out of this episode. I know that I did. And there's a lot that can be applied, even if it is looking at the opposite of what is being said here. Because we have another case where the example is a contrast to what should really be. Although we do have a messianic prophecy right embedded in the middle of all of this, which will lead us to the ideal leader. Uh, So we're going to outline this very quickly in these two chapters. And what you're going to see is one leadership office after another. And each one, except for the last one, the Messianic office, each one is an evil example of leadership. So let's just get started with chapter 22, the first few verses. uh, In fact, the whole chapter is number one about evil kings. Uh, Starting verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah, And speak there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O King of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. These are opening words to the kings who did not listen to that request made by God. And, uh, you know, in the first episode, Andrew, I think you introduced to us the list of 
all the kings that are addressed and served by Jeremiah throughout his lengthy ministry, and three of them are mentioned by name in this chapter. Uh, the first one is Jehoahaz, but he's called Shalom in chapter 22. Uh, this is what makes these uh, prophecies confusing. Several different names will be used to the same person. But uh, Shalom, or Jehoahaz, was the son of Josiah, the youngest son of Josiah, who, who followed him on the throne, probably chosen because, like Josiah, he was anti-Egyptian, and uh, like Josiah, he was also killed by Pharaoh Necho, so he only reigned about three months. But here is what the Lord said about that man, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 22. Weep not for him who is dead, nor grieve for him, but weep bitterly for him who goes away, for he shall return no more to see his native land. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, this is Jehoaz, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah his father, and who went away from this place. He shall return here no more, but in the place where they have carried him captive, that would be to Egypt, there he shall die, and he shall never see this land again. I think it's interesting to note that in verse 10, the NIV actually gives you a little bit clearer of a translation where it says, weep not for the king who is dead. So they just go ahead and identify where that pronoun goes to, and that is Shalom, or as we have referred to him already as Jehoahaz. Right. Yeah, that, that is interesting. They supply that. That helps the understanding a little bit better. Uh, now, the second king mentioned, and this is in order that they appear, is the successor to Jehoahaz after his brief three-month reign in 609, was Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is the king we've been talking about quite a bit over the last several episodes. And we include this episode here because the prophecies about him uh, predict his death and actually give us details about his death that you can get nowhere else, including the historical record. Uh, Jehoiakim is mentioned in chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or Ah, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or Ah, his majesty. Which, by the way, uh, one of the things, I love the English Standard Version, but one of the things that I can't get used to in the English Standard Version is the translation into the English word, ah. I don't really know how to say that in reading it, like if it's an ah, or an ah, but yeah. I'm doing my best here, so. They need some kind of pronunciation key there. Yeah, I, I need to go listen to an audio Bible and see how the narrator says it on that, but. Uh, he's saying they shouldn't do that, shouldn't lament him at his funeral. With the burial of a donkey, he shall be buried, dragged, and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. This corresponds, by the way, with Jeremiah chapter 36, verse 30. And, um, you know, Jehoiakim was a powerful king. He did a lot of damage to Jeremiah and tried to ruin his reputation. And Jeremiah basically was banned from the temple and had to go into hiding because of this man. He reigned 11 years, which was a long reign from 609 to 597, a long reign for the, the kings who dwelled in that time period, but evidently he died in the conquest of 597, 
and uh, was thrown over the walls, dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. I don't think you read that in the historical record. If you go to Second Kings, for example, I don't think you get that story. But we right. assume Jeremiah is correct in his prediction here. Right. You do find in Second Kings chapter 24, verse 6, there's a mention of Jehoiakim. It just says, So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. And if there's a man of renown, most of the time they are. it's mentioned where they are buried, or at least in the land where they're buried. But it doesn't say he's buried with his fathers, which is a very common phrase that you see in the Old Testament. It says he slept with his fathers, which just means he died. And then they don't give any sort of addition there to where he was buried, because largely because what you read right here, this prophecy coming from Jeremiah, that nobody's really going to care to record where he was buried. Yeah, I think you would call that consistency between the two records, even though they're very different in the way they tell the story. I, that's a really interesting detail that you dug up there. I didn't think to look for something like that. Um, let's let's go on to the third and final king mentioned in Jeremiah 22, and that's Jehoiachin. You mentioned him as the successor to Jehoiakim. Um, he's called Kaniah, though, here in chapter 22, verses 24 and 25. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the land of those who seek your life, into the land of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. And then if you skip down to verse 30, you have the Lord saying, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. You know, Jehoiachin was an unusual king in this list uh, for a couple of reasons, one being that he reigned only three months, uh, but also he was unusual because instead of being killed or assassinated or thrown over the gates of the wall or dying in battle, he was taken captive and he lived in Babylonian captivity for uh, 37 years. And as I understand it, he was treated pretty well in that situation, although we probably couldn't say the same thing about the rest of the Jews or all right. of the Jews who were in that situation. So he was kind of, he wasn't reigning, but he was kind of, uh, uh, you know, being treated as nobility even in his captivity. Right. And here's another little side note. I know I, I'm sorry to keep interrupting you with these no, little anecdotes. No, 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 no. But another really interesting thing about Jehoiachin, he's mentioned here in Jeremiah that he and his mother both will be cast out or thrown out. And it's kind of, you know, a really, I guess, odd scene to depict in verse 26. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country. Well, again, when you go back to 2 Kings 24, the same chapter we referred to a moment ago, you get to verse 15, this is what it says about Nebuchadnezzar. He carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. So very interesting, again, the consistency between these two 
different accounts, and really Jeremiah's a prophecy of future events, and then Second Kings records it perfectly, that obscure little fact that his mother as well was taken away with him. Yeah, that that is interesting. I like how these are dovetailing together. Um, let's We spent a lot of time on the kings. Of course, that's half of the material. Chapter 22 is entirely about evil kings. But there are other leadership offices that are mentioned, leaders ruling in Israel during that time. And uh, the next one are the shepherds. And uh, we'll do we'll do a little bit in distinguishing these offices from one another in another part of the uh, podcast. But uh, for now, they're named shepherds, and these are the first the first leadership office that's brought up in chapter 23. Verse one says, "Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture," declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock. And have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Now, uh, you know, he is very critical of the shepherds, and you have an idea there of the good kind of shepherd and the bad kind of shepherd, and I think there's going to be some good practical applications that go along with that in a little bit. So we'll get to that in a moment. Um, But we want to move on to the next office. And the next leadership office would be the prophets. And this is in chapter 23, who dominates the material. Uh, They're basically verses 9 to the end of the chapter. Verse 9 says, Concerning the prophets, and this is Jeremiah, I believe, speaking as one of the prophets, He is the one who says, My heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers because of the curse of the land mourns. uh, Because of the curse, the land mourns. And the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house, I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Um, verse 16 picks up saying, uh, the Lord saying, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesied to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you, and to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, No disaster shall come upon you. Uh, Verse 18 says, For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? And then if we could skip down to verse 21, he says, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel... Then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. And I have to read verses 23 and 24. I don't know where to put these except just to include them along with the passages about the prophets. Uh, You know, we talk about the theology revealed in the book of Jeremiah. Well, here's another point about God, and in particular about his omnipresence. He asks, am I a God at hand? 
declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man, and I guess he's asking the prophets, you know, are you able to do this? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? So if they think they're getting away with this, they've, they've got another thing coming, as they say. And uh, finally, on the prophets, look at uh, verse 30. Uh, the Lord says, I am against the prophets who steal my words from one another. Uh, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them so they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. I think it's good here to note a lot of those things you mentioned about the prophets. Again, these are supposed to be the people that have the word of God. And so the fact that they're lying to everybody about what the word of God is almost seems to be worse than you know lying about other matters. I'm not trying to say there's different levels of lies here, but when you think about the influence they had and the responsibility as a type of shepherd, a type of leader for these people, steering them in the wrong directions, lying to them about the Word of God. You can see some other things that they were involved in. Verse 11 calls them ungodly. Verse 13 says they actually prophesied by Baal, another god. Verse 14 says they're caught up in adultery and that they're hypocrites. Verse 15 says that they strengthen the hands of the evil. It sounds like they're almost politically corrupt, you know, allowing evil people to do evil things. I don't know, for maybe their benefit or... Either way, they're corrupt. And then what you just read at length for us, Drew, about how they denied the words of God and they lied, telling their own dreams and not the things that came from God. And then we're going to get, in just a minute, you'll touch on to that really interesting part about the burden of the Lord as well. So these prophets are not, all these shepherds are guilty of this, but these prophets, I think it's, and the priests as well that we're about to get into is especially bad because they're, they're supposed to be these spiritual guides, and yet they're lying knowingly. They are knowingly lying to everybody. Well, I don't think you're out of line in saying there are levels of lies. I forgot exactly how you put it, but you know, maybe not in terms of accountability. Like you tell one lie, it's a sin, just like telling a big lie, but... I do think there are big lies and little lies, and these prophets are telling the biggest kind because they're telling the people the Lord told them to tell to say this. And that's, you know, a message that has an eternal consequence. You don't get any bigger than that. And it reminds me of the warning James gave the teachers in James 3.1 that not many of you should become teachers, uh, warning them that teachers incur a stricter judgment than non-teachers. Well, these are right. teachers, you know, claiming they have the word of the Lord, and so they're under a stricter judgment here. Right. Uh, okay. We, you know, this is a lengthy reading, so I'll I'll get go on to the next one after the shepherds and prophets. We have the priests. And there's not a whole lot to read about the priests, and not a whole lot to mention except to say that they're included alongside the prophets in a number of passages. In verse 11, in verse 33, in verse 34, they're mentioned alongside the prophets. So a lot of what was said about the prophets applies to the priests as well. And again, uh, we'll 
get into distinguishing these positions in another part of the podcast. Let me move on to the last um, evil example, and I'm not sure if we should include this or not, but I'm going to go ahead and include it because I think in a way uh, groups of average people do have a leadership influence. And this last example are the evil people of Judah. Verse 33 seems to put them alongside the prophets and priests as leaders. Uh, Jer- uh The Lord says to Jeremiah, when one of this people or a prophet or a priest asks you, what is the burden of the Lord? You shall say to them, you are the burden, and I will cast you off, declares the Lord. Uh, So, you know, they're included alongside the leaders, and they have to be asking this question sarcastically. That's the only way that I can understand it. Whenever they ask, you know, what is the burden of the Lord? Uh, you know, they're not really interested in what Jeremiah has to say. And we know that from the context of the book. And uh, the Lord answers with a little word play there. You are the burden. Um, If you're confused by all of that, the word burden is translated in other translations, oracle. And it was a term for prophecy. Um, And I think there's a number of reasons for that that are interesting you know, you you might think, well, I wish I wish that I could be a prophet. But you look at what Jeremiah has gone through, and you read the book of Ezekiel and look what that man went through, or Daniel and what he went through. These guys are spending the night in lions' dens and being thrown into cisterns and having to have their bodies placed into stocks and having their lives threatened and. Um, you know, their wives die, like in Ezekiel's case, and they're told not to mourn for their wives. Uh, Prophecy was not a blessing to them, but a burden. It was a blessing to the people, but it's it's a burden to carry uh, the word of the Lord sometimes, especially in difficult times. And I think that's where that idea of the burden for prophecy came from. And it allows the Lord to do a little wordplay here, when the people say, what is the burden of the Lord? They're asking Jeremiah, hey, uh, Jeremiah, tell us what the Lord said today. You know, give us a prophecy for today. And um, the answer is, you are the burden. This time, not using it in the sense of prophecy, but using it in the sense of you know what we would normally think of as a burden. They were indeed right. a burden on Israel and on God and on Jeremiah. Um, Now we end the reading with the ideal, the messianic prophecy in the middle of chapter 23, which shows us what a leader should be. Verse 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, And this is the name by which he will be called. Last episode we talked about, you know, a name that Jeremiah gave, Pashur, which is, what was it, uh, terror on... Terror on every side. Yeah, terror on every side. Yeah, so that's, that's a negative name, of course, that describes the character of Pashur. And here the character of the Messiah is described in terms of the Lord is our righteousness. And I want our readers to realize that the word Lord is translated from the very name of God, Yahweh, which is why it is in all caps. 
which is to say here you have an Old Testament passage that declares the divinity of Jesus Christ. So you have all of these examples. You have the evil kings, evil shepherds, evil prophets, evil priests, and evil people as examples of what a leader ought not to be. And then you end it and you have an example of what a leader ought to be in the Messiah who is to come. So as we come back from our break, we've got several things that we want to dig deeper into. Certainly there's a lot of history we could get into with the Three Kings, but we feel like we've covered that pretty extensively up to this point. We have done seven episodes where we have talked a lot about Jehoiakim especially. So if you want some more info on those kings, you can refer back to our first episode or to the, um, there's actually some study guides that go with these up on our ARCOC website. So if you want some more info on that, you can go there. So we're going to go in a different direction. First of all, I want to look at verse 14 of chapter 22, where Jeremiah is talking most likely here to Jehoiakim, uh, because what we're going to read about is identified as Jehoiakim's palace. And you see in verse 14, he says, who says, I build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar, and painting it with vermilion. Now, if you have the NIV, that says painting it red. So vermilion, that's obviously that. If there's any other guys out there like me that don't really know anything beyond the basic color palette, red, blue, green, mm. vermilion might not mean a I thing to I have to admit, you. I had no idea what vermilion was. As, as you were reading that, I was thinking, oh, please let him know what vermilion is and yeah. not ask me. I don't think we're you know supposed to know that, right? I mean, that's a job. No, I'd be embarrassed if I knew what that was. Right. Girls know that. I'm sure a lot of women know that. And maybe maybe guys that are into interior design or painters, I guess. I don't know. But either way, vermilion is, in fact, red. And there's something very interesting. In about 1960, archaeologists, and in fact, the dig went on from, I think, 59 to 62, archaeologists discovered an old Israelite citadel, and they've named it, or they've decided that it identifies identifies, sorry, with the place Ramat Rahel. And it included a palace with some administrative buildings. And in this palace, there were these large columns, obviously, all through the palace and on the exterior. And on top of these columns were decorative, I guess you'd call them a cap. They're called capitals in architecture. But when we think of capital, we don't really think of it's just really kind of a cap. Is it like the top of the top of the pillar. Yeah, it's like Is that the what you're top, talking about. It's the top of the column. Top of the column. Right, okay. and so I guess this piece at the top of the column, I'm, and it's uh, it's kind of hard to describe. You can look it up on Google and get a good idea in your head of what exactly it looks like. And now these were found with red paint on them, and they also would form the railing of a window. 
And some of these larger pillars with the larger decorative caps called these capitals, they were found with beams that were made out of, guess what kind of wood? Cedar wood. Hmm. So So you have this picture of a palace that has very large windows that are covered with, or I guess they're outlined with red cedar wood pieces of wood for decoration. And then you have this right here. Uh, speaking of Jehoiakim, verse 13, he says, Woe to him, and goes on to verse 14, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar, and painting it red. It matches perfectly the description that these archaeologists have found. And, have found. and furthermore, they discovered 145 ancient jars in this palace, that had the inscription Imlik on the handle, and that's if you try and say it without vowels, but in the Hebrew, that's just to the king. And I'm sure a lot of folks would recognize Melech as being the word for king from Hebrew. That's probably why Martin Luther King was named Martin Luther King. Those words, MLK, were Hebrew for king. Nuh-uh. Yes. Yeah, I would I pretty sure. I didn't know that. Yeah. And so this inscription, MLK... I thought he was named after the reformer, Martin Luther. He might have been, but... And his last name was King. I'm sure that his dad knew a little bit of Hebrew, and when he named him, he knew what he was doing. I mean, there's... It's just too much coincidence there, you know. Martin Luther King, MLK is King, so... MLK is King in the Hebrew without the the markings that tell you the vowel sounds. Right. With the markings, it's Melech, just two E's in between those wow. vowels. So that's that's an interesting side note that now, I really see, is. we do get very deep that's in, right. this, in this podcast. But these pots were found with that inscription on the handle, which uh, it basically said in Hebrew, this belongs to the king. So that certainly identifies the place as a palace that would have been in use at this time. So Did any pretty... of them have junior... On them? No, I don't think any of them had Junior on them. Okay. One of them had Eliakim's name inscribed into it, but that's a different discussion for a different time. Oh, yeah. There's so many different Eliakims, I didn't want to have to try and dig and find out which right. one it was. We tried that one time yeah. for a different project and yeah, so we'll just very difficult. We'll just stick with this place has been found, and it's yeah. you know, it adds a little to what you're reading here, that that house... Did you say the name the name of the place? Uh, say say it again. It was uh, Ramat Rahel is the name of the place, and it possibly identifies with another location that simply means I think Palace of the Vineyard uh, okay. with a different name. But I think everybody recognizes it to be Ramat Rahel, and then there's some debate as to whether or not it identifies with another place alluded to in scripture. Well, that's that's really interesting. I I didn't even think when I was reading through this to stop at verse 14 and and look into that. So I didn't either. It was just a, a footnote in one of these study Bibles I have mentioned yeah, something about that place. That's really neat. Um I think also of interest would be the messianic prophecy. Uh you know, there's not as many of mu- there's not as much of this in Jeremiah as I expected. I don't know why I expected a whole lot of messianic prophecy 
I guess because I'm reading a major prophet and you look to um, Isaiah and Daniel yeah, in particular. And that's what I was thinking. So much, you know, about the Messiah. And so uh, we come to Jeremiah and it's, you know, pretty much contemporary with Jeremiah's time. There's not a lot of predictions. We talked about the prediction from chapter 25, verse 11, about the length of the captivity. But I guess he thought, you know, with Daniel doing his work, there's not a whole lot of need for me to talk about the future. I need to talk about the present. But you do have this glimpse into the future, beginning in verse 5, just for a little bit, and gives us that ideal of leadership. And this phrase seems to be something that Jeremiah favors for a messianic title, Righteous Branch. Uh, he uses it right. here, and then uh, Isaiah uses it in Isaiah 4, and in Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11's a pretty well-known passage. And uh, so uh, he uses it again somewhere. I didn't write it down for some reason, but uh, somewhere in the 30s, uh, chapter 35, I think. Uh, I should have wrote that down. But anyway, uh, you know, it's an interesting, you know, it's got to symbolize something, branch. And what is that? It's tied into the Davidic line in some way because it seems like right. whenever it's used, David is brought up. And, you know, here, I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And, uh, you know, a lot of interpreters look at that term branch not in the sense of, you know, something growing off an already existing tree, like a new branch on a tree that's been around for a long, long time, but rather a sprig out of the dry ground. Um, hmm. And so that gives you the sense of a long winter and right. the hope of spring. And all of those images that come along with spring and how life and hope are possible even though the worst should come. Uh, that's, right. that's how I choose to interpret the symbolism there of the Messiah as a branch because the monarchy completely vanished after, you know, very, we'll cover the disappearance of the Israelite monarchy in this podcast, in this uh, series on Jeremiah. And then they return to their homeland, but not with a king. Uh, at first, they're under the Persians and then under other uh, captors and uh, years to follow. But uh, then Jesus comes along, and he is the king of a spiritual kingdom. Right. And in that sense, uh, he's also a descendant of David. And so the Davidic line is alive and well and produces exactly what it was supposed to produce through the promises of God, a king, an anointed one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. Right. I think it's very interesting in verse 6, and this is something we kind of just really discovered in the break a moment ago, is in verse 6 you have this, this name that is going to be given to this righteous shepherd, or this righteous branch here. And the name that is given in verse 6 is, The Lord is our righteousness. And here's why this is of issue here, because most likely 
The king at this time is Zedekiah, and we know that because Zedekiah's name in the Hebrew is the Lord is my righteousness. And we dug a little bit into the etymology because, you know, we were looking for where exactly does the word God appear in Zedekiah. And Drew, uh, you discovered that it's at the end of the word and yeah. So just in case you're listening and you're wondering like we were, how on earth that worked out. But Drew, there was some ambiguity, right? It it could mean the Lord is my righteousness. What were what were some I of the mean, other literally, options? Literally, literally is uh, justice of God, justice of the Lord, justice of Yahweh. That's uh, Zedekiah's name. And, right. Uh, this in the Hebrew uh, must be very similar to that, with a little alteration, so that it reads. Our righteousness versus my righteousness. Right, so, and yeah. the the difference in those pronouns in Hebrew can be just as simple as you know those jots or tittles or whatever it is there you want to refer to them like Jesus mentions in his Sermon on the Mount. So a very minute difference can cause a very different meaning, but it's especially meaningful here because Zedekiah is going to be the last king from the line of David until Jesus. Yeah. So it's just interesting that, you know, here he's talking, like you said, the long winter. Well, the, if you want to call David the vine here and the righteous branch coming off of that vine, um, then this branch is going to be gone for years and years and years and years and years. Cause Zedekiah serves as the final, you know, Zedekiah, I believe, he was Jehoiachin's uncle. So he's Jehoiakim's brother, which makes him the third son of Josiah to be on the throne. So the line of kings doesn't really get past, unless you count those three months that Jehoiachin was in there, it doesn't get past Josiah's sons. After that, that's it. The kingdom is gone in Judah, and then they have Jesus appear later as the Messiah. So, yeah. Messianic you know, we read a while important. ago where Jehoiachin was told, you, you're not going to have a son on the throne. Mm-hmm. Um, so, very interesting, very similar. There is a slight difference, I just looked it up, slight difference between the name of Zedekiah and this name given to Jesus, which is distinguished by that pronoun, our, which makes Jesus right. a king of the people. And Zedekiah seemed through his name to be self-serving maybe maybe not but that that you know distinction is justified in the translation right uh, I've, I've got one more thing i want to mention yeah, go ahead. um in verse 33 and you already covered this i think pretty well but i just want to go maybe a little bit more into it if we got a little time you can stop me uh, stop just kidding okay <laughs> um, but if i go on too long start rambling stop me but this word in verse 33, a very interesting picture is painted here. It says, when one of the people or prophet or priest asks you, this is chapter 23, by the way, what is the burden of the Lord? You shall say to them, you are the burden, and I will cast you off, declares the Lord. As for the prophet, priest, or one of the people who says, the burden of the Lord, I will punish that man and his household. And this word, like you mentioned, for burden uh, it's also translated oracle. In Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 1, it says an oracle of the Lord. And then it goes on to give the word of the Lord. 
And in fact, if you're reading the NIV translation, that's one of the only translations I've found that actually does translate burden here as oracle. They just go ahead and assume that that's what Jeremiah meant. But if you look at a lot of the literal the translations... Standard, the New American Standard does that too. Okay, okay. And I it look... doesn't read very well. Um, it doesn't show you the play on words as well as the ESV because it's using oracle. It's It's almost... It's very difficult to understand what's going on in the New American Standard Bible. Um, and if our readers are reading from that, they may have noticed that there at the end of chapter 23, where I'll, I'll just read it the way that it reads there. It says, the people or prophet or priest asked, saying, what is the oracle of the Lord? And we're okay so far. We know what that means. Then you shall say to them, what oracle? The Lord declares, I shall abandon you. Well, yeah, so that doesn't really... Different. Yeah, that doesn't bring across the play on words. Right. He's, he's not saying, what oracle? He's saying, you are... They're saying, what is the burden of the Lord? Using the term burden in terms of an oracle. And he's saying, you... I'll tell you what the burden is. You are the burden. You're right. The burden. And the word, it has this double meaning because it comes from a verb that means to lift up or carry. So there's this nuance of lifting up your voice or carrying a burden, and then obviously the weight that the word might carry, you know, the burden that the word might bring. Here is what uh, this dictionary I have here says about this word. It says, a burden or load, figuratively, a judgment which lies heavy on a people, oracle, either in the figurative sense or of burdens imposed, such as a tribute, or etc. So it's just a really, like you mentioned, that play on words is really cool right here, or at least I think so, because you have the burden in one sense. It's, you know, the word that the Lord puts on Jeremiah is certainly a burden, this burden that he's carrying around, uh, trying to bear to deliver to everybody, because it's the word of God. And then you have... On the flip side of that, you have these prophets and priests that really are a burden to the people, and they're causing them to be destroyed. So the double entendre here with this word for burden or oracle, I think is this is what stood out to me the most, I guess, from what we read this week. Well, and, you know, you just, in talking about that, gave me another idea. I'm wondering what the burden is now. Uh, we have been talking as if the prophecy itself is the burden. And then, of course, in the play on the words, the people are burdening the Lord in a different way. And a lot of the things that I said before, you know, would make the prophecy the burden. But then it reminded me of what Peter said at the end of Second Peter chapter 1, where he's talking about prophecy. And he says, you know, no prophecy of Scripture came by a person's private interpretation. Um, and then he says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Oh, wow. Moved by the Holy Spirit. So then it seems like the burden is the prophet, you know, and the Spirit carries the prophet. Right. Like he's, he's carried away into this uh, mean this uh, manner of inspiration 
and uh, is he, the spirit is in control, and he's not in control. And, yeah, some good you know, notes it may mean for both of that. Yeah, some really good notes for a further study would be to see what and I'm writing this down as I say it to see what uh, Greek word is used in the Septuagint in Jeremiah for this oracle see, or yeah. burden and to see because the verb literally means to pick up or carry so I wonder if we have the same idea being conveyed in Greek as well or if that's something that's only wrapped up in Hebrew so that's a good note for further study we might bring that up again in our next episode and explain it <laughs> yeah yeah, but that's uh, that's all I've got for us in this second part. Uh, did you want to add anything else? I think I've I have thought about all I can think for this section. Okay, well we'll be back in a little bit, and when we come back, we're going to try to make some practical lessons, in particular about leadership for those of you who are interested in that subject. So stay tuned. Sometimes that's difficult to do, but not so much today. I, I think that we've got a subject that applies to every congregation, every family, um, most people's careers, and I hope to show every person. Um, but we don't have a whole lot of time, so I want to get cracking here. What we're going to do is go back through all these leadership positions and see what we learn about each one through the job description of what a proper leader should be and the first one if you'll remember in the reading was the king and what is the job description of the king well look at chapter 22 verse 3 again and he says here here is God's instructions to kings do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien the fatherless and the widow nor shed innocent blood in this place so the basic idea there is of justice and righteousness, even social justice, taking care of right. the less fortunate. Um, you know, it reminds me of, of our English word authority, and we often attach that to leadership. And it's really interesting, if you break the word authority down, its root is author. That's the root of the word authority, right. which has totally different connotations than the word authority. Uh, what is a leader? A leader is someone who authors life, who commissions and affirms life in the people who follow him. That's exactly what verse 3 is describing, and it's so far removed from the idea of authority that we usually present in our in our minds and, and as we speak about it also. Um, it also, this seems very similar to Romans 13, 1 and following, where Christians are told to be submissive to the governing authorities. The word authority is used there. And and God tells the people there that, you know, he ordained governments. And he did it for two reasons. To punish evildoers and to reward those who do right. And here you see this, 
thing. They're supposed to do good to those who obey the laws, and they're supposed to punish those who do wrong. So, I, you know, the first thing that you learn here is a king is supposed to be an author of life. He's to exert godly authority, which has been delegated to him from heaven. Right. Um, what about the shepherd? Let's go to chapter 23. And you get a job description of a shepherd. What not to do in verses 1 through 3 and what to do in verse 4. What are they not to do? Well, they're not to destroy their sheep, scatter their sheep. Um, you know, they they not to drive them away. And uh, they are to uh, gather the flock together and bring them back and to be to, to help them multiply and be fruitful and right. care for them, verse 4, and, and protect them so that they fear no more, uh, encourage them so that they're not dismayed, and go out and get the straying sheep so that there are none missing. You know, there's a beautiful description there of a shepherd, and it's very important because we know that elders of the church are referred to as shepherds over in the New Testament in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, in Ephesians 4, 11, also in uh, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. So, you know, I think it's a good thing to go back to these prophetic passages. I don't, I, even though they're Old Testament, I think they're very instructive in what, God means when he uses the word shepherd. Right. You know, the nation of Israel had elders. I mean, it's used in a different way. You know, these are the older, wiser people of the nation. But they had some older folks that were supposed to lead and lead in kind of a similar role, I guess, to our elders today. You know, they weren't the ultimate authority. It's like, you know, our elders now are not the ultimate authority. Obviously, we recognize the ultimate authority as Christ. And I think... You know, I think this is the obvious application here when we read about the shepherds and how they're supposed to interact with the people of Israel. My mind immediately goes to elders serving in congregations all over the world today and some advice that they can follow to, you know, to be sure, to make sure that they are keeping the flock together. And I think we get some, you know, some general pointers here about keeping them together and making sure that they are fruitful Especially here, I'm thinking about making sure disciples are fruitful. You know, Drew, like we talk about all the time with the seed, plant, fruit yeah, stages right. of disciple making. You know, elders have a responsibility to make sure that the disciples that they are, that are in their care, really, for lack of a better word, the, the word care is used mm -hmm. here in this passage in verse 4 of 23. And, you know, shepherds have a responsibility to encourage their the disciples under the care and to give them an environment in which they can be fruitful and to do everything they can to help them be fruitful, to help them be together, to help them to not stray, to wander off from the flock. And these are all general guidelines, but you think about all the work that goes into that. And if you've never spent any time, you know, working or, uh, being around elderships a whole lot or ministers, you know, I guess you don't really realize how much work it is to, to do all these things. It's really easy to talk about it, but this involves going to people's houses daily in the middle of the night, being the one that answers the difficult phone calls, figuring out how to handle difficult situations where there's somebody you love that's doing something wrong. How do you confront them? 
how do you tell them that that's not something they can continue to do and still be recognized as a follower of Christ? And, you know, there's wrapped up in all this nice little nice and neat, you know, three verses here is really a lot of the job description that elders are doing all over the country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess it's, it's encouraging to see this picture here. And it's, um, you know, I guess is a tall order for everyone who desires the office of an elder. Yeah, it sets the bar high. In, right. Indeed. Let's go to the prophet. Okay, what's the job description of a prophet? Essentially, it is to bring the word of the Lord. Verse 22 of chapter 23. If they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people. And you have these affirmations of the word throughout the text, such as um, chapter 23, verses 28 and 29. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat? The straw would be the dream of the prophet. The wheat would be the word of God. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? One of the more familiar passages in the book of Jeremiah. That's the job description of a prophet. He is to bring the word of the Lord exactly as it is given to him. And I've heard this illustration before, Andrew, that I think is very good uh, with Moses and Aaron to describe the job description of a prophet. You know, whenever Moses was called to deliver the people of Israel, he said, I'm not a good speaker. I'm not very eloquent. Um, I don't, you know, who's going to speak for me? And the Lord gets angry with Aaron, and then he says in Exodus chapter 4, verse 14, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. He says this, You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. He's basically saying, Aaron will be your prophet, and you're going to put your words in his mouth. It's not like you're going to make some suggestions, uh, he's going to clean those up, make some uh, changes to them before he speaks. No, Whatever exactly Moses receives from the Lord, he's going to pass that on to Aaron. Then Aaron's going to say exactly what Moses said. And that's that's what a prophet is to do. Of course, these prophets were doing the very opposite, as we have talked about. They were lying. They are bringing up visions that didn't happen, that didn't come from the Lord. And so they were poor examples of prophets. Right. And Drew, how do you think, we mentioned in the last section, you know, Second Peter one twenty one. how do you think that example of Moses... And Aaron, in the role of a prophet, how do you think that applies to the inspiration of Scripture? Uh, I think that it, it is such that when we read Scripture, we are reading the Word of the Lord. And I don't have any examples in front of me, but there are many times where, you know, Jesus himself would refer to Scripture, and then a few breaths later he would say, the Word of the Lord. Right. And so or he would name, you know, Isaiah... As you know, as the prophet Isaiah says, and then he will say it's the word of the Lord, or he'll quote from Scripture and he'll call it the word of the Lord. So inspiration is so effective that 
what the apostles and prophets wrote down in Scripture is, in fact, the word of the Lord. That's right. something important for us to remember. Uh, ready for the priest? Let's go yes. to the job description of the priest. Now, as I said, there's not a lot of detail about the priests here, but they are mentioned in a negative way, and they're condemned for the poor job that they are doing, and a lot of what it was said about the prophets applies to the priests. But a priest is a go-between, standing between God and the people, and we did a little series at church here at the beginning of the year called Prophet, Priest, and King, and we distinguished a prophet from a priest. Do you remember this, Andrew? We said that the prophet uh, represented the represented God to the people, and a priest represented the people to God. Yes. I think I got that right. And, uh, you know, Hebrews 5.1 is the best inspired job description of a priest that I can think of, which says, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So, on behalf of men, the priest offer these gifts and these sacrifices. And of course, over in the New Testament, each Christian is told he is a part of a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9. So we lead in that function as the go-betweens between the world and God. We have access through Christ to the very throne of God and can bring our prayers to him and our praise uh, just as the Le Levitical priests did over in the Old Testament era. Right, and I think that leads us here into. I hope I'm not jumping ahead of you, but no, I think go, that. Go ahead. I think that lead. I think that leads us into your final point of now that we have all been recognized as a royal priesthood. Then there's leadership, yes, in the elders. There's leadership um, in the deacons as well. But if we're translating this and applying it to the local church today, there's leadership responsibility on everyone. So it's not like we can throw our hands up and say, well, the elders, you know, this is all the elders' fault, the elders' problems. All of us are in a some sort of position of leadership, at least as it applies to uh, the relationships that we ourselves have with God. You know, we are, we are responsible. It's not like an elder is responsible for us being able to pray to God. Am I making sense here, Drew? Yeah. Yeah, As a, and, and I was thinking about this and, you know, trying to decide whether to bring it up as one of the categories of leadership, and I decided to, but then when I got down and I was trying to make the practical points about what the job description of each office was, I was kind of confused, and I thought, well, you know, what we have here is a is a picture of what the people ought not to do. What are they doing in verse 33 of chapter 23? They're blaspheming God. That's what they're doing, or blaspheming the word of the Lord. Right. Whenever they go to one of his prophets and they say, what is the burden of the Lord? You know, being very sarcastic towards him. Hey, what's the news today, Jeremiah? Did you get that tomato wiped off your face that was being thrown at you last week when you were in the stocks? Yeah. Uh, what have you got for us today? You ready ready to get spit upon again? You know, that, that was their attitude toward the Lord in the negative so what's the opposite of that well it's respect for the word of the lord that's each and each and every person's responsibility and influence as a leader you as a christian should be a shining light 
that causes people to respect God and you should be someone who represents his word not just in your words but also in your deeds and the Great Commission applies to you go into all the world and make disciples of every nation baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you uh, so you know I believe that applies to each and every one of us and we're about out of time but I can't forget the example that negates all of those evil examples is the Messiah who is presented as righteous dealing wisely reigning as a king uh, and saving people and in him Israel will dwell securely anytime you're in a leadership position and you don't know what to do look to Jesus and he will show you the example of how you ought to conduct yourself as a leader that's about you know all the time we've got you got anything to add as we close not other than thank you for listening to this episode and if you need to or if you'd like to contact us or ask us a question or maybe try and get some follow-up on that second Peter 121 relation to the burden and oracle word in the Hebrew you can send us an email you can reach me at a Kingsley at arcoc.com and you can reach drew at D Kaiser at arcoc.com really complicated difficult to remember email addresses oh yeah yeah and you can find us on the internet at the 66.net and 66 is a number not a word and that website stays updated and we recently as I'm saying this we have recently launched ourselves on to the Facebook world so if you want uh, updates of when we post new episodes to our website that'll go up on the Facebook and also we have a Twitter account you can search at the 66 podcast again 66 is a number and it's the same thing on Facebook the 66 podcast so find us subscribe and if you want to do us a favor you can leave us a review that'll help us out a lot that'll get us up in the search results to where it will be a lot easier for folks to find and learn hopefully a little bit with us as we study the word of God together. 